0: don't think I'm hyperbolic when I say that I think 10 years from now, we may look back and say that the FERC order 2222 combined with order 841 was certainly the most significant action that FERC could have taken uh, to to contribute to the fight against climate change and uh, carbon mitigation.
1: The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission may not come up often at cocktail parties – remember those? But it is a government agency with immense power to shape U.S. energy policy and influence the country's response to climate change. In this episode, we speak to FERC Commissioner Neil Chatterjee about some of his recent rulings and his outlook for the future of U.S. energy policy in today's shifting political landscape. Welcome to Political Climate. I'm Julia Piper, your host, a contributing editor at Green Tech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, oversees the interstate transmission of electricity, natural gas, and oil, as well as natural gas and hydropower projects. When Neil Chatterjee was appointed to the commission by President Trump in 2017, there were concerns in the clean energy industry about what his leadership would mean. Headlines dubbed him things like McConnell's coal guy and fossil fuel champion Chatterjee, referring to his role as a former aide to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. But Chatterjee's role at FERC has proven to be much more complex than simply a coal guy, despite his sympathies for Kentucky coal communities. Chatterjee has said he believes FERC must proactively address shifts in the energy industries that it regulates and ensure that emerging technologies play an integral role in wholesale electric markets. In line with that, he recently voted in favor of rules supporting distributed energy resources and carbon pricing. His openness to supporting policies that benefit clean energy may have actually cost him his chairman title at FERC, having recently been demoted from the role by President Trump while remaining on the commission. We discussed Chatterjee's work at FERC and his outlook on American energy policy with the commissioner himself. But first, joining me for this conversation is my Democratic co-host, Brandon Hurlbut, who is a clean tech investor and a partner at the consulting firm Boundary Stone Partners. He's also the former chief of staff at the Department of Energy. Brandon, how was uh, your Thanksgiving weekend?
2: It was low key. We were supposed to do a Friendsgiving uh, up in the Bay Area. but
3: um... I've, I've never heard anything. More liberal than a friend's giving in San Francisco. So I'm I'm
2: sorry that didn't work out for you. My goodness. (laughs) Fair fair point. Fair point. So we played at Loki. We were just at home, uh, you know, my wife and I.
1: Aw, Shane, that was uh, your voice there, Shane Skelton, a Republican on this show. He is a former energy advisor to uh, former House Speaker Paul Ryan, and he's currently a partner at S2C Pacific, where he works on energy policy shane uh yeah you traveled for thanksgiving how was that where'd you go
3: it was amazing uh we went to boise idaho but we we drove up in a sprinter van so we did yellowstone this summer and we didn't make the same mistake we actually got a sprinter van with a bathroom in it so i didn't have to pull around the side of the road every five minutes for my kids isn't that stinky great.
1: though isn't it no
3: it isn't We you don't smell <laughs> a thing and honestly you know it's it's uh it made it so much easier so we went up through um nevada and oregon into idaho as opposed to going through um, utah like we typically do it was a beautiful trip spent some good time in boise came home and uh i couldn't have had couldn't have had more fun COVID is is obviously devastating for a lot of reasons but but i've been able to get out on the road see more of america which has been great
1: there you go finding silver linings uh yeah we we zoomed my husband and i uh his family back in st louis so it was one of those very covid holidays but uh But now let's turn to our conversation of the day. I'm excited now to bring in FERC Commissioner Neil Chatterjee. Hello, sir. How are you doing this week? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. It's another sunny day in California, so can't complain there so i want to jump right in here with the scene setting question as people in our audience may know you came to FERC having previously served as an energy policy advisor to senate majority leader mitch mcconnell and then you were appointed to FERC by president trump in 2017. we'll get into some of your work and the details of the orders that you've uh, advanced and voted on um, and what those mean for energy policy going forward but to set the scene How would you say your thinking has evolved on energy policy over these past three years, uh, if at all?
0: Uh, Well, thank you for the question. Um, I actually don't think my views evolved so much um, as it just took me some time to get adjusted to making the transition from partisan legislative aid to independent regulator. When I first came on to the commission, Uh, in August of 2017. I was tapped to serve temporarily as chairman. I'd just come from spending nearly a decade of my career working for Leader Leader McConnell, fighting on behalf of the constituency he represented in Kentucky, uh, in coal country. And we were confronted with a notice proposed rulemaking uh, from the Department of Energy, asking the commission to value power plants that had the attribute of on-site fuel. And, um, you know, uh, I had to learn and I had to grow and I had to adapt into my new role. I think I knew very quickly when I saw the proposal from DOE that it would not pass legal muster. But having just come from this partisan political environment, I perhaps wasn't as careful with my rhetoric And didn't really fully appreciate that a regulator's role, particularly an independent regulator's role, is quite different. And while I ultimately made the right legal call in how I voted on the DOE proposal, the way that I handled it in the public sphere was, as I look back on it, um, I handled it poorly. And um, while it's unfortunate, having the benefit of being able to look back And gain some perspective on it. That experience, I think, better prepared me for some of the challenges that I would face later in my tenure at the commission. But ultimately, and we can get into it in more detail, I think the approach that I took of looking for conservative, market based solutions to accommodating the energy transition, that's sort of been my focus throughout my tenure at the commission. Uh, perhaps with that one early uh, side note of the DOE NOPER, where as I look back on it, that was a decidedly unmarket approach to resolving some of these challenges.
1: Right. So the DOE NOPER, as our audience may remember, sparked a huge debate in 2017 and early 2018 about reliability and resilience and how to define those terms. It was criticized by some as a bailout for coal and nuclear facilities. My Green Tech Media colleague, Jess St. John, did a lot of great reporting on this, and we'll try and include a, a link or two in the show notes. Uh, but for the purposes of this conversation, Commissioner, could you provide a little more information on what the DOE Nober was and what you said at the time and what you'd maybe redo and, and say differently now?
0: So initially, the proposal asked the commission to look at the attributes of baseload power, namely coal nuclear and the fact that those sources of generation had on-site fuel and were uninterruptible and therefore that value those attributes were not properly being reflected in the marketplace and that the Commission should essentially find a way to compensate those plants for those attributes Uh, And my colleagues and I uh, conferred, and and there simply wasn't uh, a legal basis to approve of what DOE had put forward. But I was deeply sympathetic to the plight of coal communities. I had seen firsthand the devastating impact that coal plant closures uh, would have on communities where the coal mines and the plants they fed weren't just the direct source of employment for most people in those communities but a big part of the the culture and the history and the cultural lifeblood of these areas and so i was trying to balance my sympathies for those communities with the legal complexities of this infirm proposal and i was trying to find a way to make it work and i you know had made some public comments about possibly looking at ways to, uh, you know, maybe pause the markets while we evaluated the threat to resilience. And people were hanging on my every word, and that was causing a disruptive, you know, impact in the markets. And as I grew into the role and had a greater appreciation for the significance that for commissioners and particularly the chairman play, I realize now how disconcerting my rhetoric was. And, you know, I never would have handled it in that public forum uh, had I you know, been more adjusted into the role, but keep in mind, you know, I had just been sworn in to the commission. I barely knew where the bathrooms were. I've used the analogy that I didn't get thrown into the deep end of the pool; I got thrown into the deep end of the ocean. And uh, uh, again, all all good things coming from tough situations. I do think that, um, despite the fact that I mishandled that early situation, it did help me grow and develop into the role and that experience would go on to teach me and serve me well as I confronted um, newer challenges later in my tenure.
2: Commissioner, thanks for that. And you often don't find people in DC that are willing to acknowledge um, that they could have handled something you know, better. <laughs> it doesn't happen very often. Um, I wanted to ask you more generally, what do you think should be the relationship between FERC and the Department of Energy? You know, FERC is an independent agency When I was the chief of staff at DOE, um, I was always very nervous about calling over to FERC because I took that uh, independence, you know, very seriously. And we were, you know, we did not want to uh, politicize anything. Uh, John Norris was a commissioner when when I was DOE chief of staff, and we worked closely together when he was chief of staff at the Department of Agriculture before he went over to FERC. Uh, And so even with a friendly relationship, I was always you know, careful um, about those communications. You have President-elect Biden with a very aggressive clean energy agenda. Uh, Many goals he's put out, uh, you know, clean energy by 2035 and such. What do you think should be the relationship between the Department of Energy and FERC on sort of policymaking?
0: Yeah, I think uh, if you look back at the example that I just laid out, I wasn't the only one that learned from the, the way that I handled DOE NOPER, so did DOE. And I think that after the commission had voted unanimously 5 0 to reject that proposal from DOE, not only did I grow from that, uh, so did Secretary Perry and ultimately Secretary Briette. Um We all gained an appreciation for the importance of FERC's independence. And I can affirmatively say that um, after that initial experience with the NOPER, DOE was completely hands off with uh, the commission uh, in the subsequent three years. I continued to have a very uh, friendly relationship with Secretary Perry. I consider Secretary Briette to be a good and close personal friend, but our engagements have been social and over bourbon, not over policy. And I think that's really important because in an otherwise volatile regulatory landscape. And if you look at the policies that that you all pursued in the Obama administration, went in one direction, the Trump administration has gone in a different direction, and now we're likely to see another reversal. In the energy industry, where stakeholders are making 10, 20, 30-year investment decisions, trying to peg those decisions the pendulum swinging back and forth based on who's in political power, that's just completely untenable. So I think an agency like FERC being a beacon of stability in an otherwise volatile regulatory landscape is really, really important. And so I hope that after that initial episode, um, the commission under my leadership demonstrated that independence, uh, and I'm optimistic that um, it will continue forward in the new administration?
3: Uh, Commissioner, well, well first, uh, just for our audience, some clarification. Um, uh, the Commissioner has been talking about the NOPER, which is notice of proposed rulemaking. And just because we're going to get into the MOPER, the minimum offer price rule, in a little bit, I just wanted to clarify that so our, often, our, our audience knows we're talking about two um, different things. And real quick, actually, before jumping. Exactly, through. exactly. I forget sometimes, and Julia often reminds me that. When you live in this space, you don't get confused, but, but if, you're, if you're trying to learn about it, it can be, it can be quite confusing. Commissioner, I want to, to dig into the, the MOPER, uh, especially in the PJM territory, but prior to that, based on what you have seen, because you were talking about sort of stability in policymaking a moment ago with Brandon, based on what you've seen through the MOPER process, uh, the Carbon Pricing Technical Conference, and just some of the other issues you've bumped into, including the NOPER, um do you think that FERC in the future, if you were king for a day, should have a larger role in setting energy policy and creating that stability? Or do you think FERC's role should be narrowly limited to you know, the markets and the costs and uh, you know, making sure that there's sufficient power to meet the need?
0: That's a great question. Um, I think FERC is naturally constricted under the Federal Power Act. You know, we don't have the authority to pick and choose amongst generation sources we are not an environmental regulator. And so given our complex energy markets, the authority we do have is a statutory mandate to ensure just and reasonable rates for wholesale power. And I think that's important that FERC remains adherent to that approach. That doesn't mean, however, that FERC will not continue to be a central player in the energy policy landscape moving forward. I think as more and more questions arise about the energy transition and innovation and integrating new technologies, to me, that's where FERC's role as a market regulator hopefully will continue the approach that I laid out of removing barriers to entry for these innovative new technologies Giving all technologies the opportunity to compete on an equal footing, I think that's the role FERC can and should play. And I think it can be very effective in enabling the energy transition while staying within those statutory guideposts.
3: So I just want to follow up on that a little bit because I think I think you make some great points about the difference between what FERC's you know mandate is under the Federal Power Act and being an environmental regulator, but then you know, digging a little deeper on the MOPER. Don't the two, at least in my view, sometimes conflict? So by trying to ensure equal access to the marketplace, and for those who don't understand what, what the MOPER is, the minimum offer price rule, it tries to account for, and, and please correct me, Commissioner, if I, if, I, if I misstate this, but it tries to account for state-level subsidies that favor specific generation technologies so that everyone's bidding into the wholesale market on a level playing field. Some would say that's preserving the free market, but some would say that's distorting the market because you're not allowing you know, states to, to, to you know, have as much control as they'd like over their generation resource. So isn't it possible that even though uh, FERC under your leadership has acted completely with, within its authority, just by the way technology has advanced, that, that, um, that, that clean line between environmental regulator and market regulator has started to sort of blur
2: a little bit? Look at you, Shane. Tim Russert over here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, having spent uh, years observing uh, Speaker Ryan up close, I know he expects nothing less than total expertise from, uh, from his staff. <laughs> There's nothing about that, uh, that question that surprises me. Um, it is a great question, and it's obviously something that um, the commission has really been grappling with the, the past couple of years this issue of the the intersection of the markets we oversee and state policy decisions you know i want to emphasize again uh, i'm a conservative i firmly believe in states rights and i fully respect states authority to make decisions about the generation resources that serve their residents more and more states are moving forward with policies to curb carbon emissions, and particularly in the absence of federal policy in this area, I think there are no doubt that this will continue and there's no signs that it will slow down. But as I mentioned, the fundamental fact is FERC is not an environmental regulator or a market regulator. So when states adopt policies that negatively affect the competitiveness and functioning of wholesale markets, sometimes we just have to make tough decisions. And the MOPER orders, you know, are, are the tough calls that we had to make because what we found was that when states subsidize certain resources or resource types, those subsidies aren't transparent in the marketplace. They aren't market based and they hamper Competition. So sometimes we've got to take difficult market protective decisions. But I think what gets lost in the conversation sometimes is that competitive markets are an important tool in the energy transition. Organized markets can encourage investment in more efficient resources and new technologies. You mentioned PJM. PJM reported earlier this year that its footprint, the CO2 emissions rate has dropped by about a third. So I think everyone benefits when states focus on market solutions, which is why I'm really excited about the conversation we've been having at FERC about the intersection, particularly of state carbon pricing policies and organized wholesale markets To me, fuel neutral carbon pricing stands in stark contrast to policy tools like subsidies, which again can amount to to hidden costs that can skew price signals and, and they ultimately wind up hurting the consumer.
1: Commissioner, I just want to jump in with a clarifying question so that uh, everyone listening is on the same page. So Shane mentioned the MOPER, the minimum offer price rule. Um, So people may have seen headlines about this last december that's i believe when the decision was made and FERC at that time issued this long awaited order that directed pjm interconnection to dramatically expand its moper to nearly all state subsidized capacity resources and the order uh, is said to have had significant impact on pjms capacity market can you just take one minute to explain what exactly the decision did and what it affects
0: yeah so uh uh, to be clear the decision was not like a a proactive rulemaking or action that the commission took. Um, We were responding to complaints that had been filed at the commission. And this is something that has been ongoing for years. Again, in the absence of a national or federal policy on carbon mitigation, states have taken it upon themselves to enact policies that favor their preferred resources. And what we found in multi-state organized wholesale markets. So PJM, largest market in the country, ranges over 13 states in the District of Columbia. You had certain states that were promoting policies to favor their resources, and that was impacting resources in other states and how they were dispatched. And again, these are the tough calls we have to make my colleagues and I on a majority of the commission came to the conclusion that if state A was promoting policies that favored resources that inhibited state D's resources from being dispatched and state D did not necessarily favor the public policy objectives of state A, it was important that the federal commission intervene in that regard in response to a complaint that was filed so we moved forward you described it quite well with this minimum offer price rule which to simplify it way too far but essentially uh i thought shane laid it out pretty well says that um entities have to bid in their true costs not their subsidized costs uh in the capacity markets personally i was i disagreed with some of the headlines on this and the articles that said that this um was uh, going to negatively impact renewable uh, deployment and, and the growth of renewables. I actually think that there is a strong business case to be made for renewable energy and clean energy going forward. We're seeing the costs of clean energy come down to such a degree coupled with consumer demand and when I'm talking about consumers I'm talking about everyone from Fortune 500 companies Individual families who are demanding cleaner sources of energy, to me, I'm very bullish on the future of clean energy. I think at their onset, the growth in renewables, no question, was driven by subsidies, regulations, and mandates. I think renewables have evolved to a point where they can compete and thrive on their own without the need for these kinds of uh, price distorting policies. So I'm optimistic that once a couple of auctions have run that people will recognize that this was not the existential threat to the growth of renewables that they feared and that allowing market forces to play out will continue to lead to reduction in carbon emissions and the increased deployment of clean energy technologies.
1: Now, forgive my ignorance on this, but I understand there's a link here between uh, carbon pricing and the rules there. So I've seen reporting in Utility Dive, for instance, that Calpine uh, in May indicated that it wanted to come workshop some solutions to the MOPER is how it was reported and that carbon pricing could be part of this. Commissioner, can you explain that?
0: So. uh I think the, the headline of the article in Utility Dive and the contents of it um, uh, were a little bit different, but uh, I think to, to take a step back and uh, away from that particular uh, uh, article, what we're finding is that, in my view, a price on carbon, as I mentioned, because it's transparent and is a superior policy tool, in my view, than than price distorting subsidies, that if states can come forward with these kinds of policies, we made clear in our proposed policy statement the commission issued in October, that the commission has the legal authority to evaluate whether such a proposal was, was just and reasonable. And we had the authority to, to make that determination. We also made clear we did not have the authority, because we're not an environmental regulator, to unilaterally impose a price on carbon but should a state enact a price on carbon as part of their policy kit at the state level, the commission could consider how to accommodate it in our markets. And so, in my view, uh, the reason that I supported that proposed policy statement built off the record that we put together at a technical conference on the issue that we held in late September, um, I think that is a conservative market based approach to carbon mitigation in FERC jurisdictional markets.
1: Yeah, I just want to put a finer point on that, that FERC determined it has the legal authority to implement a carbon price. uh, And you were in support of that. And I think it's a pretty exciting space that a lot of people in the climate and energy world are watching because it could have pretty big implications. And I think we'll circle back on that and your support for that uh, a little later as we talk about personnel. But in the same vein of uh, clean energy innovation, a big Rule there is FERC's recent order 2222, two, 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 deuces wild, as Brandon likes to say. Uh, Brandon, do you want to tee up our discussion there?
2: And Commissioner Chatterjee, you know, we're very excited about uh, FERC order 2222, two, 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 the deuces wild. Uh, as somebody who's very engaged in the distributed energy resource uh, world, uh, we see great potential, you know, for what you guys did over at FERC. Tell us about the order and, and why um, it's a big deal for our. For the industry.
0: Uh, well, thank you for that, and yes, I'm uh, quite proud of uh, two, 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 or Quad Deuce, as I uh, like to uh, refer to it. Uh, my staff, um, look, this is a, a, a step that I'm really proud of, and it's in line with what I spoke to earlier, which is you know kind of my regulatory philosophy of allowing markets to to operate efficiency efficiently and removing barriers. Uh, to market entry. And so what we did in order 2222 was remove barriers to aggregated distributed energy resources, or DERs. And here I'm talking about things like aggregated rooftop solar, uh, electric vehicles, and their charging equipment, uh, really advanced appliances, things that hide in plain sight, uh, but really have tremendous power. And what this order has the potential to do, and and I truly feel it was a historic landmark order, uh, is the the simplest example, if you have a single electric vehicle, it can't possibly impact the market. But if through the power of technology, third-party aggregators can harness the combined power of numerous uh, electric vehicles, then suddenly You're uh, able to compete with the power plant down the street. That will benefit consumers. uh, That will benefit the economy. And that will have tremendous benefits for the environment. One of the things that I'm particularly proud of there is not only could it lead to continuing the squeeze on carbon out of the U.S. power sector, but if this action that we took to remove barriers to access on the power market side leads to the accelerated deployment of electric vehicles on the transportation side, you could also see a scenario where this power sector rule enables further squeezing carbon out of the transportation sector, which is our single greatest challenge as Americans as we confront uh, carbon mitigation.
2: One thing that would be helpful for our listeners is maybe clarifying some of the state opt-out uh, Provisions uh, and and how they work, uh, because I think there's been some confusion around that. So there's the FERC Order on Demand Response uh, seven four five that I believe allows states to opt out uh, from those uh, demand response you know programs. Uh, and then there is FERC uh, Order eight four one, which is dealing with energy storage, which contained a provision saying states cannot opt out that was legally challenged and the courts upheld your order on that so so states could not opt out and then from what i understand on uh two by four for two by four two 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 uh there is no provision about uh states opting out there's some you know for smaller utilities they can uh but how should the industry think about whether states can opt out of this landmark ruling?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, thank you for also bringing up uh, Order 841. Uh, For your listeners, that is an order that removed barriers to entry for battery storage technologies. As you mentioned, that initial order was challenged on jurisdictional grounds at FERC. It went all the way up to the DC circuit, and we prevailed in the DC circuit. And that actually uh, really strengthened the foundation Uh, of order 22-22. The two orders really share the same DNA. But we learned a lot in that 841 compliance process. And what we found was, again, FERC is a a records-based agency. We make the decisions based on the facts and the evidence before us. And there simply, you know, wasn't anything to work with on the record to account for some of the concerns that Smaller utilities had when we considered 841. Uh, I think stakeholders learned from that, and we were able to include language in 2222 for an opt in with an understanding that there could be some unintended consequences uh, in certain regions of the country to where smaller utilities could be overwhelmed. And so we provided this opt in option. Um, what it will mean for stakeholders. I think a lot of this will be borne out in the compliance process on 22-22, which uh, compliance filings are due in July. I think the commission will spend uh, a great amount of time in 2021 and 2022 working through those compliance filings. And I think what you'll see is there'll be different approaches in different parts of the country. My hope is that as stakeholders work with the various RTOs and ISOs in different regions and sort through some of these complex behind-the-meter issues, that you will see entities eagerly opt in and participate when they see the benefits of this rule. But it, it, it's really complex. There's a lot more work to be done. But uh, I'm very excited about the potential and the possibilities that, that, that this rule could bring forward. And uh, I don't think I'm hyperbolic when I say that, I think 10 years from now, we may look back and say that the FERC order 2222 combined with order 841 was certainly the sig- most significant action that FERC could have taken uh, to, uh, to contribute to the fight against climate change and to uh, carbon mitigation.
2: Between, you know, FERC 2222, 2222- And the 745 order on demand response, is FERC thinking differently about distributed energy resources versus demand response for access to the wholesale markets?
0: So, uh, again, uh, in 745, uh, the approach we took to DR, um, we take a similar approach here in 2222. I want to be very clear about that. There's not a distinction in our approaches there.
3: Commissioner, I want to zoom out a bit, um, and just to sort of set up these questions, I want to throw some shade at Brandon because I know that while I think he, you know, trusts uh, my intentions in trying to find uh, a more decarbonized future, he doesn't have a lot of faith in our in our party writ large. And I want to I want to try to set him straight. There's very few people who have been as involved in energy policymaking um, at the level you have, and by that, of course, I mean as an independent regulator at FERC, but also. Um, as the, the top energy aide to the Senate Majority Leader, who you know, has probably been more influential on in public policy than, than many others uh, in the history of the United States. So I, I think you've got a pretty good seat uh, from the bird's eye view. And so my double-headed question, to the extent that you're able to answer is, what do you see as possible within the next five to 10 years in public policy towards decarbonizing the power sector? And do you see Republicans writ large being part of a solution, whether that's a big bill, whether that's several different bills, do you think the Republican Party in the House and the Senate, elected Republicans, I mean, um, will participate in some larger public policymaking effort to try to decarbonize our economy sooner rather than later?
0: Yeah, it's a fabulous question. Uh, A lot to unpack there, but let me me give it a shot and cite to a couple of examples. Um, So I just mentioned 841 and 2222. Um, these were both rulemakings that were initiated by prior leadership at the commission under chairman who had been appointed by President Obama. Um, and so when I took these up, uh, based on a commitment that I had made to Senators White House and Markey when I was going through the Senate confirmation process, there was a sense that these were policies that would not be widely supported by uh, conservatives. And what I found is we moved first on battery storage. When we completed that order 841, that battery storage rule, it was challenged in the courts and you didn't see a lot of support for battery storage technologies at that time. Well, we moved forward with the rule. We moved forward with the compliance process. And now fast forward a couple of years and you're seeing Republican lawmakers in Congress, in the House and the Senate, in state capitals. As well as industry embracing 841. And when we got to 2222, which is a remarkably forward looking rulemaking, you haven't seen a lot of opposition to it. And I think that's because conservatives around the country have noted that this type of market based approach to carbon mitigation is something that uh, is, is worth exploring and they can be supportive of. Similarly, and I'm sure you'll want to get into it um, later on in the conversation when we talk about personnel matters. But I will note that if you look at the parties that approach the commission asking us to convene a technical conference to explore the viability of a carbon price in for a jurisdictional markets, we're talking about some really uh, hardcore left-wing liberal groups like the Natural Gas Supply Association and the Electric Power uh, Supply Association, the <laughs> American Petroleum Institute. Um, I think what is remarkable- So left-wing. <laughs> if you look at the comments that have been filed regarding the proposed policy statement on carbon pricing that have been put forward, almost the entire energy industry has put at least constructive, if not outright, Supportive comments forward, and I think that is an indication of how far the the landscape has shifted on these issues. And I am optimistic that Republicans and conservatives can play an important role going forward. And I think the key elements to garnering that support are going to be focused, focusing more on what I stated earlier is the business case for clean energy and. Not only are we going to see increased consumer demand here, you're going to see increased investor focus. And I think that's going to drive the debate and the dialogue. And so um, I've already seen it firsthand uh, that Republican lawmakers in Washington and around the country are embracing these kinds of market-driven solutions to carbon mitigation. And I think that's only going to increase in the years ahead.
1: Yeah, uh, a shameless plug here for a series that we're running in addition to our regular Thursday shows called Ditched that looks specifically at the financial sector and how they're pressuring uh, all kinds of uh, companies to decarbonize, including oil and gas companies. Uh, that's, an, that's a topic we looked at in a recent episode. So yeah, it does seem like the entire landscape is shifting here. Um, I guess I have a personal question for you, Commissioner. Did Did you always think about how to combat climate change as part of your energy policy making or is this something that integrated in your thinking and in your decision making more so recently as the tides kind of turned on this
0: so as i made the transition from staffer to principal once i had a platform of my own i made it known very quickly that despite the fact that i was a republican from kentucky that I believed climate change was real, that man had a significant impact, and that we needed to take steps to mitigate emissions, but that I wasn't in favor of heavy-handed regulations or mandates. I preferred a more market-driven approach. Initially, my strategy when coming into the commission was, uh, I I never thought, uh, intended to be, hoped to be chairman. I had always thought that I would be a commissioner uh, alongside my dear friend and colleague, the appointed chairman, Kevin McIntyre. And my my objective was to push Chairman McIntyre on these issues to embrace this market-driven approach. And I think he was in agreement in a lot of these areas and actually put many of these policy initiatives into motion. Sadly and tragically, uh, Chairman McIntyre uh, became ill and passed away, which thrust me into the chairmanship, where I wanted to be very deliberate and strategic in how I went about this approach. And so in everything from approving LNG export facilities, which in my view will lead to clean U.S. LNG displacing more carbon intense sources of fuel, particularly in Southeast Asia, will have a positive benefit of lowering global carbon emissions. To working with our international allies on market design, that's been uh, kind of an underreported element of what the commission has done the last couple of years. We've been meeting with our allies around the world and what they're asking for is our expertise and our guidance on how to design markets in their own countries, because they've seen the benefits of uh, how our markets have effectively mitigated carbon, and they want to learn from that and build upon it. And, and that's been an important part of it. Obviously, 841 and 2222, 22, there's a separate order, 845 on generation interconnects. Uh, we've moved forward to dialogue on carbon pricing. We're looking at offshore wind integration we're looking at uh, uh, electric vehicles and, and EV integration. Um, these are all market-driven solutions that I've kind of championed in my role as chairman that I'm quite proud of that are very much in line with a conservative way of thinking. And I'm optimistic that we can continue to build on it.
1: There is so much to discuss, and you've laid out so much uh, really brilliantly here. Uh, We just have a couple last questions that we'd be remiss if we didn't bring in, because they are newsy, and in fact, we're kind of burying the lead here, because... We are speaking just less than a day, really, since uh, Allison Clements and Mark Christie were sworn in as the newest members of FERC, which brings the commission back to five members uh, for the first time in a long time. And we're also speaking as there's been a new chairman appointed to FERC, James Danley. uh, And of course, that changed your role in the process. I guess I want to start with that pricklier question. What is your understanding of why that shift was made uh, to the chairmanship, and what do you think it will mean for the work going forward? I'm speculating
0: based on um, uh, what others uh, have told me and um, uh, informed speculation, but it's likely uh, the actions I took, particularly moving uh, aggressively with the proposed statement, policy statement on carbon pricing, uh, by signaling an openness to, to consider that. That may have rubbed people the wrong way. Potentially, there are some who viewed 22-22, which I personally think is very much in line uh, with a conservative market-driven policy. But there might be some uh, who thought uh, that that was a bridge too far. Um, and finally, uh, there was uh, an executive order uh, barring diversity training, which we had already commenced, uh, diversity and inclusion training, which we'd already commenced at the agency. I didn't think the training that we were Uh, conducting was controversial or divisive at all uh, and pushed back there and maybe that rubbed some folks the wrong way. Um, So that's my speculation and um, uh, to me uh, it's fine. It, It doesn't really change much. The agenda that we're going to carry out over the next few months is the agenda that my team and I have been working on for some time anyway. Uh, and then President-elect Biden will uh, be able to appoint a, a new chairman in January. Uh, you mentioned uh, my two new colleagues, future commissioners Clement and Christie, were confirmed by the Senate. Uh, I look forward to, to working with both of them, along with uh, uh, Commissioner Glick and uh, now Chairman Danley, in the future. Um, I intend to stay and finish out my term. A lot of people are focusing on the fact that um, Republicans will hold a 3-2 majority. Uh, on the commission for as long as I'm there. And I personally think that that is not something folks should be alarmed by. Uh, I'm hopeful that the integrity and independence that I've demonstrated throughout my tenure, working on these solutions that I, I, I intend to be constructive and to work with the new leadership at the commission. But here's why I think it's even more important that that I stay and contribute to this. I've listened to your podcast. I think you guys do a great job. And uh, on an earlier uh, episode, you guys discussed the importance of bipartisanship in durability to these kinds of big policies. To the extent that my participation in this debate and dialogue will lead to bipartisan outcomes, I think that will ensure that they're more stable in the future. Will enable me to to to, to work. With constituencies that may not at first react positively, as I work to to, to you know get their comments in the record uh, and build on these policies, if I can put a bipartisan stamp on some of these things that I think are important to to the energy transition, I actually think that is more critical than my leaving being replaced by someone to my left who will then move forward and policies are voted out on a 3-2 basis, that may not necessarily be durable. I actually think it's better for the commission and for the clean energy transition if I stay and work these things out in a bipartisan way.
2: Commissioner, uh, thanks for listening to the show. Uh, That's really great to hear. And, you know, Julia is actually a a journalist and and Shane, you know, brought his like Tim Russert A-game today. So I feel like I have to pull my weight and ask like a journalist question based on what you just said so does that mean the fact that you want to serve out your term does that mean that you're not running for governor of Virginia
0: you know that's a great question Uh, uh, I uh, uh, have uh, obviously you know uh, uh, Shane and I came up through the political ranks I think Uh, when you work in an organization if you're an ambitious person you want to move to the top of your organization and uh, I've spent the bulk of my career in public service working for uh, elected officials and so naturally I've been curious about uh, possibly uh, running for office someday. I can definitively say I will not be a candidate in 2021. I intend to serve out my term at the commission. What I will say is at the conclusion of my, my FERC tenure if it's up to me, uh, this will most certainly not be my last stint in public service. I don't know if a future stint will be elected, appointed, staff, or volunteer, uh, but I will serve my country again in some capacity.
3: Well, because of that answer, um, Commissioner, I'm not going to ask my final question. I'll turn it into a statement. My question was going to be, where should I expect to see um, Neil Chatterjee in four years? But I'm going to change that um to uh i'm a big supporter uh really impressed with what you've done at FERC. so whatever you decide to do next uh call me for help happy to to contribute or be helpful in any way how about that that's a statement not a question but that's how i want to close it out
1: here's my resume here's my email you can find me on twitter
3: i want to be be a supporter i want to be a supporter
2: can can i ask a last another last question and shane didn't ask is what do you think generally on nominations i mean i was very encouraged to see the, you know, Allison and um, the other gentlemen get confirmed yesterday. Do you think McConnell's going to confirm Biden nominees generally, or are we going to be in sort of a war of attrition just trying to get uh, Senate confirmed spots uh, through the Senate?
0: I, I say this with no information. I've had no conversations. Uh, my sense of it is is most members uh, uh, of the, the caucus believe that presidents should be entitled to, to choose their Cabinets. Will everyone get through? Uh, maybe not. But uh, I think by and large, you'll see members of the Senate willing to give the president elect his cabinet.
1: Commissioner, we often end our show with a segment called Say Something Nice. where you have to say something redeeming or positive about the opposing party. Could we just end with one from you?
0: Look, um, I had the opportunity to engage with then Vice President Biden numerous times during uh, my tenure on the Senate staff. And what was remarkable to me is on the instances that I would run into him when he was visiting the chamber, uh, I was a lowly insignificant staffer on the floor, but he always made it a point to, to stop and talk to me and check in on me. And he remembered that I had kids. He remembered that they played soccer and I was their coach and would always ask uh, how they were doing, how our season was going. And on a couple of times, he told me that he knew it was exhausting for me to do it, but that I would never regret being an involved father the way that he was. And I will always appreciate and uh, remember his kindness and decency. And while I may have significant disagreements with him on policy, I truly wish him well Uh, for the future of our country.
1: I think there's no better note to close out on than that. Uh, For Commissioner Neil Chatterjee, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, we'll let the commissioner jump off the line here. Thank you so much, sir. Turning now to Brandon and Shane for your final closing thoughts. What is your say something nice for this episode? Brandon?
2: My say something nice is actually about our guest, Commissioner Chatterjee. I mean, he exercised independent judgment under the face of extraordinary pressure, whether it was from the initial DOE, um, you know, interference, you talked about the beginning of the episode uh, or what happened to him because he, you know, had some interest in carbon pricing, uh, wanted to learn more or did diversity training. I mean, those are things that uh, you know, you shouldn't suffer consequences for. Uh, And many Republicans today have been lived in such fear of President Trump that they've been unwilling to exercise independent judgment. And that has been the thing that has been most disappointing to me about the Republican Party in general over the last couple of years. Like, I understand one person uh, like President Trump, but to have, you know, basically an an entire party enable that. Uh, So I think what Commissioner Chatterjee has done to just – be act as an independent regulator and not succumb to that pressure and do his job, call some balls and strikes. Uh, in today's Republican Party, it's, it's a real profile and courage, uh, to be honest. And so I wish we had more Republican leaders like Commissioner Chatterjee. I think if we did, we would have a much better chance at bipartisanship going forward.
1: Heck, all all leaders and, you know, his his ability to be, you know, candid and explain things and hold public forums like this so stakeholders can understand the process regardless of party. I think that's a really valuable uh, thing for a leader to do. So just adding an echo to what you just said, Shane, uh, close us out here. What's your say something nice?
3: Yeah, well, first of all, I'm I'm so glad uh, to hear Brandon's because I, I've tried to convince you guys uh, both for a long time that there are a lot of Republicans like me out there. They might just not be the ones that are you know on cable news at night, um, you know, filling filling the air with with nonsense. So I'm glad that uh, that you both got exposed to someone smarter than me, uh, with more experience than me, who has you know shares my views and and my hopes for the future of how Republicans will approach energy policy. But my say something nice is actually about. Um, Commissioner Chatterjee's colleague, Commissioner Glick. Um, it is my sincere hope that Commissioner Glick will become Chairman Glick uh, when President-elect Biden is officially sworn in. And, you know, we've talked about all the things that uh, Commissioner Chatterjee did as uh, chairman in in moving along these critical orders and, and helping facilitate decarbonization of the power sector in the best way you can within the confines of, of the Federal Power Act and FERC's authority. And I really think uh, a, a potential... Chairman Glick would do the same things. He's going to take a, a different approach, and obviously, we don't agree on all policy uh, matters. But I think he would continue the work uh, that they started together in a bipartisan way to find ways to go to act within uh, FERC's authority to take uh, make some of the hard decisions that need to be made to modernize our power sector and decarbonize um, our power sector, and 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 really address climate change uh, to the best extent possible within FERC's authority.
1: Yeah, and you know I don't know tons about um, Mark Christie, the new FERC appointee on the Republican side, but Allison Clements, uh, she's got a great record on advancing clean energy policy in her life before joining FERC. She has stated in the press this week that you know she will approach everything as an independent commissioner now going forward. But I think people are optimistic about what her perspective will bring. So FERC, you know, not your not the agency you chat about over over dinner usually, but nonetheless, lots of power and ability to craft the future of climate and energy policy in america and we'll leave it there so thanks to everyone for listening we hope you made it this far because there was so much great information in this interview uh, if you haven't hit subscribe yet on political climate please do that we're available wherever you get podcasts we're also on twitter at poly p-o-l-i underscore climate and we're on instagram with the same handle that's it for now signing off I'm hey, Julia Julia. Piper. Are,
2: yeah. we on a, are we on a spack can we do it? Can we get <laughs> political climate
1: is actually also joining us back. We're going public, folks. Uh yeah, look out for political climate coming to us back soon. That is officially it. Goodbye.